0: and welcome to Jeff Does Vegas 2023 in Review. As the year comes to an end, I've decided to take a little trip back in time and reshare some of my favorite conversations from the last 12 months of the podcast. For the first episode of 2023 in Review, I wanted to pay tribute to all the entertainers who took time out of their busy lives to jump on the show and have a chat with me. Singers, musicians, burlesque performers, comedians, and magicians all made it into the run this year. We covered a ton of great topics, and it was an absolute blast talking to all these amazing people. Enjoy. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Spiegel World's Atomic Saloon show is one of the best, if not the best, shows currently running on the Vegas Strip. And back in episode number 145 of the podcast, I was thrilled to be joined by one of the incredibly talented cast members. On one of my trips to Vegas this past year, I headed over to the super-secret Spiegel World headquarters, where I met up with Petra Massey, who's better known as Boozy Skunkton, the proprietor of the Atomic Saloon and Brothel, who also serves as the MC for the show. One of the many things we talked about was the process behind the creation of the Atomic Saloon show and Petra's initial reaction when she started seeing scripts and going through rehearsals.
1: Most days I was like, because, (laughs) I mean, my journey was, um, you know, everyone's journey is a bit different, but I had been performing with my compadres. I toured Stefan and Toby for 20 years and I hadn't done my own stuff for well, since before I met them, because I used to be a solo performer. I was a street performer, stand-up comedian, and, you know, just jobbing actress, basically. So suddenly, I was kind of carving my own way, but without my three boys. And the whole my whole character within Spy Monkey is I always want to be the star... You know, I, I aspire to be the star, but I'm never allowed because Toby's always, because I'm I'm an idiot. I mean, if you're told that you're an idiot in Clown World, that's the highest accolade that you could get. And he'd just say, <laughs> no, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. You can't. So it was always wanting to be the young ingenue. Um, and then suddenly, although not young ingenue, but they want me to play the lead. And then I was like, well, where's my comedy? Where, where do I, if I'm already the lead, how, you know, am I playing the straight person? Am I, am I, what is this? And I, I found it really, really difficult. I mean, I had a comedy partner back then, um, who was very, very funny and, um, had been solo performing. So, you know, he was very, very strong and I felt extremely lost. So, uh, and it was a real challenge for me to find my feet again um, in that way without Toby Ito and Stefan, and carving what is the new me in this show where I am playing the lead. Um, and I'd get—I don't know if I'd get embarrassed, but you know, people would go, oh, "You're the lead of the show." I'd, I'd say, "I'm the boss lady." You know, I'm the—I'm <laughs> the brothel owner because I do feel like. You know, I'm very for the fact that, you know, this show that you see is just a small part of the big picture with all the the crew and the wardrobe and the management and all the performers and the musical directors and the director and the producer. And it's, you know, sometimes they don't get credit. So this is me giving credit to everyone that put this show together because it, it took a a huge amount of work but it was a huge amount of fun doing it but uh, yeah I was a doubting Thomas for I would say mmm I would say at least for the first four to five months uh-huh. of performing it I had to really find my way and it was it was really challenging for me but I have and I feel like I'm owning it now and I feel very in boozy skin and um, sort of the woman that you love to hate
0: I want to talk about Boozy because, I mean, she's she's out there. She's such a great character. She's so much fun. How much input did you have in developing that character? And and the bigger question is how much of you is in that character?
1: Well, with Cal, um, we, the clown is very much you. It's the part clown would... Uh, I, uh, Sorry, Cal would always say it's your party self. It's yourself where you go into a party and you're on an absolute buzz and you are the bell of the ball. So it's that it's that kind of energy. So boozy is me to a certain extent. It's my sort of aggressive party self, my out there, outrageous, gregarious um self. Uh but we also had a script writer um that came in so he would come up with a lot of the lines or and most of the script and then I would tinker away at it which I've done and I'm still doing because you know it's forever changing with the pandemic and now not the pandemic and masks sometimes and this and that so I always, but I'm always very respectful. So I always make sure that, you know, I check in with Cal or check in with the resident director. Sometimes I'll just find a line and just go, okay, can I change it? Because that really works. So you're constantly keeping it fresh. But yeah, the clown, the boozy is very much me. It's, I mean, that's why Cal got me in to do this job because he wanted that, that type of energy, that type of clowning. Um, and he wanted a, a strong female lead.
0: How's the character evolved? in the time that you've been performing the show now?
1: Um, this has been, again, an interesting journey because I was playing the lead and I was the brothel owner and I had a whip and she was very um, aggressive, but it was too aggressive. When I first started, it was... Um, she was too frightening and it wasn't funny. And I was playing the status rather than that the status just take over uh, and then I could play under. I was playing very high status and I was just too mean. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the jokes weren't coming. Uh, They weren't, they weren't working because people were just like, Oh, I don't think I like you. Um, You're actually a bit of a cow and you're horrible to people. So I just started turning, toning it down and finding the laughter of boozy and finding the softness because i'm already high status i'm already the brothel owner i'm already their boss the staff's you know everybody's boss i could just let go and i think i think that happened actually when i gained confidence that you know i could run the ship basically mm. cuz that's what i'm doing i'm i mean a lot of people say that i'm i'm the glue of the show i keep you know i you know i feel very responsible for making the the show Uh, energetic and high and giving everyone their accolades intros and outros and just keeping that energy up and and, you know uh, buoyed and so the audience are always interested and also that our bits are interesting because there's such blow blow me away acts that you've got to try and keep up with that level of skill you Uh know even if it's just verbiage and um, you know just ma- making jokes and stuff like that and on a quieter night that can be hard mm-hmm. so sometimes I have to do this thing I call myself boozy bullet so I just I just absolutely keep the energy and if there aren't any laughs coming I don't wait for them you know because there's mm-hmm. nothing worse than waiting for a laugh that doesn't come yeah and I can sort of tell when they're quiet. they're enjoying it but like a quieter audience mm-hmm. otherwise the energy drops
0: Do you ever have those nights when you walk out and you look at the audience or you do one of the gags or one of the jokes and it doesn't really land and you just think, oh, it's going to be one of those
1: nights? Never. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it happens on occasion. It happens on occasion. But you know the beauty of this is we're such a tight company and such a tight cast that there's a twinkle in all of our eyes. And most of the time it gets to a point, usually when it's Jean-Louis that goes out, Jerome, where the audience change and we have them in the palm of our hands. It takes them a little while to sort of settle into the show because as you know, the opening song is pretty hardcore. Yeah. And you it sort of sorts um sorts out the meat from the potatoes of who's going to be enjoying this show and who's not, because, you know, it's not for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um but usually I would say nine times out of ten there's a point in the show where it turns and then they're in the palm of our hands. Mm-hmm. And then we just I would say You know, most of the time, it's just an absolute riot. Even on the quieter shows, winning those quieter shows over is is really lovely. You feel like they're with us. They're with us. They're a little bit quiet, but they're totally with us.
0: It isn't very often that you get the chance to talk to someone who's collaborated with and performed for the likes of Sting, Jerry Lewis, Ice-T, Fergie, and Jeff Goldblum. So when you get that opportunity, you take it. In episode number 162 of the podcast, I was joined by Las Vegas' own Melody Sweets. Now, you may know Melody from the six years she spent with Spiegel World's Absinthe, where she played the part of the Green Fairy, a role that she originated. Or perhaps you've seen her photo in one of the dozens of places they've appeared, including Las Vegas Magazine, The New York Times, and the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Issue. I had Melody on the show to talk about her latest project, a web series called "Sweet Spot," featuring the tagline "Baking, boobies, and one evil donut."
2: It's so silly. It was so silly. the The whole process from from writing, you know, it originated with uh, one of my best friends, uh, Miss Tickle, Melissa King Jules. Um, she is a brilliant brain. I always tell her I want to lick her brain. I know that sounds weird, but I know I'd get something from it. But she's just this uh, beautiful performer and creator. And, you know, we had started writing for my show was supposed to go on the strip. A uh, few different variations, a few different producers I'd sign with. But the the recent one was um, at Caesar's Palace at the um, uh, Cleopatra's Barge Room. But as we know, that closed forever. Oh, killed me um but you know so and that closed in the pandemic so and so did basically entertainment as we knew it at that time right so we decided let's change gears and we started writing it for tv and realized oh we can do whatever we want in tv you know we're not restricted to the stage or you know what we can do live and stuff like that so we really had fun with it and then our friend Anais penny pivots came in and she was like i love this i'd love to produce and direct it and then uh she basically was uh she's like let's put puppets in and i'm like no and then you know she won because she's brilliant and of course it's it's awesome and now I'm like, more puppets! <laughs> so, you know, uh, definitely not a kid's show for everyone out there listening when you hear the that there's puppets in the baking show. But, um, yeah, that's uh, it's been a wild, wild process from writing to having all those wonderful Las Vegas characters in my home, filming in my very, very pink kitchen now. <laughs> so pink. Oh my god, it's so. It looks beautiful on screen, but in real life, it's pink. <laughs> it's <laughs> so crazy. Um, but I'm loving it. We are hoping for a season two. Um, you know, right now we're just trying to get get it out there and uh, go. We're going into this new world of screen instead of live. So it's a learning process for us and. We're just having fun with it,
0: and and I assume you are a baker. You you enjoy baking, do you?
2: I do. I I used to bake uh, for the foster kids and some of the homes that I lived in, and I didn't do the crazy stuff that I was doing now. But in the pandemic, uh, one of my sisters had come into town, and it was my birthday. I'm like, kind of pouting, like, I'm gonna make my own birthday cake, you know, and then. It brought back that feeling and that, that feeling of safety almost and realizing that what I made made people happy around me. And even if it was for a laugh, you know, um, and then we get to eat that happiness, which was always great, you know. So I just kept doing it and making crazy bakes for my neighbors. Uh, I'm now the neighborhood cake lady. I don't know how I feel about that, um, but it's <laughs> happened. You know, and just getting the response that I do from some of the bakes that I've made for people, big elaborate things, you know, has been very um, heartwarming and rewarding in a very different and unexpected way. And so I just went with it. And it's on brand, my name. (laughs) I was like, this is great, you know? So... Yeah, I'm just kind of going wherever it takes me and having fun with it, enjoying our time with my wonderful friends creating.
0: I know the Vegas community is such a, the entertainment community is such a close-knit group of people. I assume you had no problem convincing anybody to be a part of this, basically going to them and going, I've got this crazy idea for a baking show with boobs. Do you want to be in it? I'm guessing everybody said yes.
2: Actually, I... I know for the people that I asked, I didn't give them very much info. <laughs> I was just like, hey, you want to be a part of this project I'm doing, you know, with, uh, with Tickle and Anais. And they're like, yeah, sure. And, um, you know, there were some very funny moments. Uh, for example, in uh, the fifth episode, you see the Virgin Mary. And um, she does some very <laughs> questionable things in that episode. And she was, she's like, what <laughs> she had no idea that that's what she was going to be wearing or doing. And she was just so on board, you know, with it. And that's how it went with most cases. They were just like, oh, okay, cool. That's what we're doing. Okay. And a lot of people maybe didn't understand, I think. But it was so much fun. And um, I think most of those people might return if... Uh, If we have that opportunity, I think we treated them well and had a good time. And we all got to eat afterward. So that was fun, too.
0: Always a bonus. Do you think that this is something that could translate to a live show, though? Like, you could very easily turn this into a live, you're going to bake something live on stage.
2: I mean, it had many different variations. It uh, originally was very burlesque, very uh, elegant, classy, naughty, you know, but but this beautiful thing, and then the comedy kind of came in, and and then, like I said, the puppets and evil donuts and stuff like that. So, um, yes, to answer your question, it could definitely be a live show. And, of course, we've written a few versions of that. Um, we haven't really brought that to anyone's attention because we've been very focused on the filming and getting all the you know everything released we've got bloopers coming and you know the editing process has been a bit uh slow and we're we're just doing it as it goes and hopefully learning a lot and doing it better the next time
0: After becoming the first ever magician to win America's Got Talent back in 2014, my guest for episode number 150 of the podcast hit the Las Vegas Strip with his show Magic Reinvented Nightly at The Link, where he's been performing for almost eight years. On a trip to Vegas back in March of 2023, I joined Matt Franco backstage at his namesake theater for a conversation about his life and career. We talked about how he got his start in magic, his AGT experience, and what it's like performing in a city surrounded by so many people who he grew up idolizing.
3: It's really surreal and hard to put into words. It's it's one of those things where I just, I can't quite get used to it or understand it. I'm just thankful for the opportunity, but like, I still don't know how to answer that question. (laughs) (laughs) It, It still is like a pinch me moment for me uh to to be here doing it i mean it, it really just i i feels like i'm just going to wake up and go oh that was cool or that wasn't real or that was a cool dream mm-hmm. right yeah but here we are backstage <laughs> you having sat through the show so like can you confirm it actually did happen it actually to the best of my knowledge okay. it actually did occur i this, thought so too this
0: conversation is actually happening <laughs> as far as i know so yeah here but i here mean we that's are.
3: that's my genuine feeling on it is like how, how, how did this happen? It, mm-hmm. it, it, and I consider myself a realist, but it actually makes me question, like, does everything happen for a reason? Is this some sort of strange thing that was inevitable? Mm-hmm. Like, having grown up and sort of manifested it, and here I am, decades later, doing it, it just doesn't feel like a reasonable dream to have and then mm-hmm. have come true. Right. You know, which is why as I became older and became an adult, my goal became to just be a full-time magician. Uh-huh. That, to me, seemed like an outlandish goal enough. Right. Right? So, yeah, it actually makes me question, like, is this all some sort of, is this too much of a coincidence? Yeah, is this a plan? There's, like... <laughs> there's
0: something to be said for that manifestation. Because right. I, I know in in your bio and and in the show you talk about having a picture of Las Vegas on your wall as right. a as a as a kid. Like right. this is where you wanted to end up.
3: Yeah, and only because the magic I was seeing on television and in Lance Burton was one of those magicians who had a a Lance Burton theater Uh here in Las Vegas. And uh, I came to see him my first time when I came to Vegas at 12 years old. And that was when I purchased that poster at the gift shop and put it up on my wall when I got home. Um, Yeah, it's it's really quite surreal.
0: Now that you're in Vegas, is there anything that really kind of surprised you about the city? I know other entertainers that I've talked to and people that have come here have said they're they're quite surprised at how supportive the entertainment community is in this city. As far as um, other cities they've been in, whether it's L.A. or New York, everybody's very competitive, not so much supportive. Whereas here, it's it's much more supportive.
3: Yeah, I find that locals support locals in general um, in and outside of show business because local is a tourist destination. So I find, I I just love the local vibe that locals take care of each other. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think there are just a lot of misnomers about Las Vegas, right? Like I get snow in my backyard. People don't believe that, you know? Uh, People say, oh, you're in Vegas. Like, oh, that must be so crazy. And then I have to like, go into this explanation of it's not what you think it is. And it's, it's a really cool local community and a vibe different from what people think of when they think of just the strip alone. Uh Um, But now to the point where I just, I feel like people are kind of glazed over when I try to explain it. So now I just, I don't even go into it. They say, that must be crazy. Everyone's drunk all the time. I just go, yeah, that's it. That's, uh, I'm drunk (laughs) drunk right now, actually.
0: (laughs) Hammered. Um, The the other thing that I know so many people have said about the city is they're surprised at how uh, charitable the community is. And you're heavily involved. You've got a lot of different charities that you work with here.
3: Yeah, uh you know, I jumped on doing a lot of things with animal charities when I came out here initially. So we've we've do this supply drive each year with uh the Animal Foundation. I have 4 rescue dogs and one rescue cat at Mm -hmm. home that's five rescue pets so we have a full house yeah (laughs) (laughs) Um, we've done uh, a supply drive with Animal Foundation each year we've raised over $30,000 worth of supplies for them I've won another $20,000 playing Who Wants to be a Millionaire for the NSPCA and also just donated a couple of thousand meals to celebrate our 2000 shows for Foursquare, a food bank here in Las Vegas. So, uh, I feel like it's important to give back. Speaking of that close knit community vibe, um, I enjoy being able to, uh, give back to a community that's given to us.
0: That's awesome. Um, the show itself, you're coming up on eight years here in Vegas, which is fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Um, You just did a big revamp on the show. That's right. Why was now the right time to do that?
3: Well, as I mentioned, I became a dad, pulled off my best trick ever (laughs) on the 6th of January. Uh, So I was going to be spending about a month at home. Mm -hmm. So that seemed like the right time to have my team at the theater working literally around the clock to load everything out and load all the new stuff in. So Uh new baby at home, new baby at work, all at the same time. Because why not start an entirely new production... Right at the same time that you have a newborn. You Perfect know? timing to me. It sounds great to me. You yeah. know,
0: maybe I'm a genius. Do yeah. you think
3: it might I, like classify as a genius idea? I would say so, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, would I, say I don't so. know. Yeah. I, now,
0: how how does your spouse feel about
3: that, though? <laughs> <laughs> That's the big question. No, no, the truth is, it's a lot to take on on both fronts. Yeah. Um, and uh, Tiana is such a champion um, on both sides of it. She was there for our reopening night. And, uh, also uh being such a a trooper and champion at home as well um it's a lot to take on but it was kind of the only way to do it that made sense Uh right if you're gonna be taking a month off it seemed like a great opportunity to load out the show and load in the new stuff that i've sort of been dreaming up for the past who knows how long so it just seemed like the right time to do it and get it done
0: I need you to imagine it's the early 1980s. You're sitting in the captain's chair, cruising the Atlantic shores of the Hamptons with all your best pals on board. The bikinis are fluorescent, the shirt collars are popped, and everyone is grooving to the sounds of Toto, Christopher Cross, and Air Supply. That, my friends, is yacht rock. And that is what Las Vegas headliners, the Docksiders, are all about. Back on episode number 169 of the podcast, I was joined by Docksider's frontman and founder, Kevin Suker. During our chat, Kevin shared the inspiration behind the creation of the Docksiders.
4: I was listening to Sirius XM in 2017, and I was, uh, you know, I was blown away that there was now... A genre, I guess, is the right way to say, or or a title for this kind of music. It wasn't just soft rock. It was cooler than soft rock. This is yacht rock, right? Like this is like you're envisioning, you know, you know, hanging out in the summer in the Hamptons on a boat, you know, blasting Christopher Cross. Um, and I started listening to their playlist, and I was like, wow, this is this the music's really rich the songs are so well written the productions are I mean like I talk about it's where I come from the productions are so well thought out and sound so good and you had to be able to sing and you had to be able to play your instruments um, and I was managing I, I hadn't been a performer for 20 years once my career ended in like the 90s I was like I transitioned to being a producer. Um, a a writer. And then I had this knack of managing artists. I had a knack of getting artists songs on the radio and putting them in front of 20,000 people on tour and building the careers of artists and, and being the guy in the back of the room that would fold my arms, just knowing that I had a piece in helping someone else's dreams come true. And I had amazing success. Sold a company in 2013, Became the CEO of a, of a music company that my sister company was making uh, a, a movie. And as I'm setting up my company, they needed help on the movie side. They had no uh, contract experience. So I helped negotiate our position in the film. That film went on to win three Oscars. So I've had this like just amazingly charmed career um, that went in ways that I'd never, never imagined. Um, but it, it was 20 years since I had been on stage, and I said to the, an agent of this kid that I was managing who was playing with some of the biggest girl groups on the planet, Fifth Harmony and Little Mix, and he's this huge agent over at ICM in New York. And I was like, can you tell me this concept? There, there, there seems to be a phenomenon of tribute acts that are selling tickets in theaters, like real concerts. And he was like, man, listen, it's a legitimate business right now. There's a demographic of people in age group that has money. They can spend $50 on a ticket. They can go spend $120 on a meal. And they can go out on the weekends and see something that takes them back and takes them to a place that they remember when they were growing up. And I went, wow, okay, so what do you think of this? I said, I've been listening to the Sirius XM radio station called Yacht Rock. Uh, radio and, you know, Christopher Cross, Kenny Loggins, Michael McDonald, Toto, Olivia Newton-John, Robbie Dupree. I mean, the list goes on and on and on like, you know, Lionel Richie, there's all these sort of things. Um, And, and I said, I'm thinking I would be interested in maybe coming out of retirement. If I could do it in the level where we were playing concerts, I don't want to go play in bars anymore. I don't want to play like 7 and $10 cover charges where you're hoping 30 people come out. So he said, I know who you are and the quality of work you do. I'm signing you. Go put a band together. And I hung up the call with a deal at ICM for a band that I didn't have together, but I had a concept. And that was in 2017. We played our first show April 8th of 2018. Um, we sold it out because people were just curious in our hometown of Milwaukee. Um, And then the agent had an idea of putting together a limited residency in our hometown where we were going to be playing very regularly to build up this sort of like excitement. And we played three shows. And when I mean, there were like lines out the door um, in a city that doesn't really support that any longer. Um, And then He started putting us in like this eight hour radius outside of Milwaukee. So we were playing everywhere from Detroit to Cleveland to Toledo, Chicago, St. Louis, Minneapolis. And then the pandemic happened and everything, as you know, was done. We were done playing. We had started getting this amazing momentum. Um, and we started doing really well outside of our, our hometown as well. Um, and, uh, we 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 did what everybody else did we tried putting together uh zoom recording sessions and we tried to putting together you know um content that we would pre-record and send to each other and then put it up so people could stay with us throughout the pandemic we what was a two week shutdown turned into 2 years um and then coming out of that imagine like you know a, a newer band that was like a year and a half old that was just getting off the ground trying to find a Saturday night in May to play in Baltimore when every other band in the planet was also now coming out of the pandemic was like, Oh my gosh, we might've been like a, you know, number 1265th in line for that same date. Um, but for whatever reason it worked, and we did, we toured right out of the pandemic again. And, um, we, I'm, I'm so – Jeff, had I met you like five years ago, I was so content being a manager and being a producer. And, But now having – like we played 15,000 seats at Mohegan Sun with Tony Orlando this summer. And the video that I have and the feeling stepping out on stage as the leader of the Docksiders and as a singer, which was my dream from when I was 16 years old, it is the most full circle moment in my life. I am so humble and so grateful that I get the opportunity to do this now, um, in a very different kind of way than I think I would have been at 16 years old had it happened for me. Um, we sit and we meet everybody. I will stay till they kick us out at a merch table because I want to thank every single person. And they want to take photos and they want us to sign autographs. And um, I, I'm, it's, it's, I'm floored. I'm blown away that I get the opportunity to not only travel the country, making people happy, taking them back to a simpler time of their lives. And truly our show is therapeutic.
0: In years past, the Vegas strip was jammed full of a combination of large scale production shows and mid-level headliners with the odd big time residency tossed into the mix. However, over the last while, Las Vegas has gone through a big shift in entertainment. The large-scale productions are struggling, the mid-level shows have either moved to off-strip showrooms or shut down entirely, the casino lounges have gone silent and been replaced with sports books or high roller rooms, and Las Vegas Boulevard is absolutely littered with marquees advertising high-priced residencies at almost every resort. To find out why this evolution has been happening, I turned to an insider in episode number 149 of the podcast. On one of my Vegas trips this year, I caught up with Vincent John from the Bronx Wanderers who have been caught up in all these changes. Vincent and I connected at the Lounge in the Luxor, and he took me behind the curtain on some of the reasoning behind all the changes happening in the Vegas entertainment landscape.
5: Las Vegas has always been a cyclical place. Like, you know, for a group of years, it'll be family driven. And then the next five to seven years, it'll be all club driven. And next thing you know, all kids coming, you know, 21 to 35, they all go to clubs. And now you're seeing a giant shift towards sports, which is we're in the next cyclical thing of Vegas, which now people are going to see the Golden Knights. People are going to see the, the Raiders play at Allegiant Stadium. Uh, when I came out here in 2016, there weren't any headliners out here. You didn't have Bruno Mars and Katy Perry and Luke Bryant and all these people every night. All you had... Were the mainstays at Caesars, which were, you know, Elton John, Cher, you know, your usual Rod Stewart, your usual people. So people would go and spend money on, say, Elton John one night, and then the next night they have a little bit of money left over. Not a lot to spend 500 to see Elton John again, but maybe we'll take a shot on Bronx Wanderers. Maybe we'll take a shot on Tenors of Rock. Oh, maybe we'll take a shot on this Meatloaf musical. Now we're at a time where ticket prices are so ridiculously overpriced that people don't have that extra income to go to that smaller show the next day. You know, now they're spending $800 to go see Bruno Mars, and maybe they'll spend 300 to go to a Golden Knights game. So you're seeing a lot of these shows, smaller shows, kind of cycle out. And it's a sad thing because a lot of the rooms out here, like say, for instance, you brought up Batta to Hell, that's, that's like a 1,400-seat room. You know, on a good night, they were selling maybe one to 200 tickets. I mean, you need smaller rooms out here. But at the same token, people aren't going to go see a smaller show when they have the option to see Bruno Mars, Mm -hmm. Katy Perry. This has now become a tour destination. Look at the uh, giant Madison cube that's going to be out here. The the sphere, I'm sorry. Sorry, Madison Square Garden, you know, you got to love it. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, that's going to be twenty thousand people a night, yeah. And you too is going to headline that this year. Mm-hmm. So imagine how much Live Nation is going to be charging for those tickets. So, it's in a state of flux. It always has been in a state of flux. I'm lucky that I moved down to a hotel at the South Point where they're packed Monday through Monday every night with my demographic that goes and sees a Bronx Wanderer show. Right. So I'm I'm lucky that I'm a. I'm only doing three days a month now. I'm no longer doing. 27 days a month mm-hmm. which again once you limit the supply you increase demand Yeah. so all these shows are learning I mean look at Awakening right now that's the new show that just opened out of the wind mm-hmm. they're now offering payment plan options for tickets Yeah. where instead of spending $150 at once you can do $10 a month so now imagine spending $10 a month you see a show you don't like that show the next 10 months you're still paying for a show you didn't like <laughs> You know, I never thought I'd see the day I'd see that. Yeah, ever. Yeah. So I'm as flabbergasted as to where this town is going to. But I'm. I'm going to say this: it's sports, online betting, and giant headliners. Mm-hmm. That's where it's going.
0: Are are some of these smaller shows? Are they are they being pushed out, or are they doing this on their own? Are they making these decisions, or is it a, a combination of the two? To to this is survival. This is what we have to do
5: a lot of the shows i mean look if anybody could stay and make money and be in one place it's a win but i mean you know i have friends like queens of rock and mj evolution a lot of the shows were at that theater mosaic Mm -hmm. the theater itself closed down and all those shows in that room were spectacular and they're all looking at me going you know how do we get into a tropicana or a westgate or, or or a mainstay hotel and i look at them and go The amount of money you're going to spend on Vegas.com, the amount of money you're going to spend on marketing, Uh the amount of money you're going to spend on labor and the union. I mean, before you even make a dollar, you've lost $15,000 that week. Yeah. And if you're selling anywhere from 20 to 60 tickets, you're going to – you can't float. Yeah. And I'm not saying I'm better than any one of them. That's why, like, I'm no longer doing Westgate because while Bronx Waters were there for 14 months – we lost some weeks, we made a little money some weeks, we were even some weeks. But it it's not a money making model. Mm-hmm. It's not the hotels have basically turned into landlords. Where they no longer get behind the show. You no longer have a thing where, oh, "Okay, Bronx Wanderers, you're going to bring in 100 people. Let's support you." But then those 100 people are going to go to one of our restaurants. Mm-hmm. Those 100 people are going to gamble at our place. Those people are going to, you know, maybe go see Barry Manilow. It's no longer every department's counting on everybody. Uh-huh. Entertainment only cares about entertainment. Food and beverage only cares about food and beverage. Yeah. And that's why South Point, I feel like, is the last hotel that does it right, where entertainment will lose $10,000 that month, but they, but they pay me a flat-out check I don't go there and have to pay for anything. Right. Because they look at me and go, well, you're bringing in 400 people that are going to eat at our restaurant, that are going to drink at our bars, that are going to gamble at our slot machines. So everybody wins in that scenario. And that's why human nature's there. The Righteous Brothers are there. We're there. And I feel like that is the future. This whole 26 days a month thing is going to be a thing of the past because shows aren't going to be able to afford the union... They're not gonna be able to afford the marketing costs. You can't anymore. If a hotel isn't gonna get the marketing, why should the shows have to take care of the marketing? Okay, if you're you're gonna make us take care of the marketing, give us a piece of the bar. And then they look at us and go, no. So then we have to look at them and go, then we're not coming. If you're not gonna be there and help us, why are we gonna bring people in to lose money and help you?
0: It's interesting you mentioned those shows like Yourselves, Righteous Brothers, Human Nature. Yeah, Those are all shows that all headlined on the Strip. I mean, Human Nature was how many years at the Venetian? They
5: were uh, maybe 10, 8 to 10. They were there a long time. Yeah, Righteous Brothers yeah.
0: played for a very long time. They were at uh for quite
5: a while. I think they were at, I for, think for at Harris a while. for a long time, yeah. And you
0: guys bounced between Harris and The Link. And, and I, I opened
5: mean- at Harris February of 2020. Yeah. A, lot, a lot of good that did me. And yeah. a month later, <laughs> the pandemic hit, and I was on unemployment. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, Westgate was so kind to us. They picked us up and had never even saw our show. Yeah. And they just picked it up based on word of mouth yeah but it was a thing where we just we weren't making money and we were working far too much right far too much again we were I'm salaried so I made my money but my producers were losing tons of money yeah and now everybody kind of just gave the finger to the strip and said okay if you're not gonna take care of anybody we're gonna go where people take care of us mm-hmm. and South Point is in my opinion the only hotel that's doing it right
0: I hope you've enjoyed this little trip back in time to revisit some of my favorite conversations with these incredible Las Vegas entertainers. If you want to check out the entire episodes, you can find the links in the show notes at jeffdoesvegas.com or search them out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts.